Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt and nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours. Because we don't just make the world's best calls, we speak the language. Primo's. Well, welcome everybody to the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I am Dale Luganbill. On today's episode, whew, you're in for a treat. This one is awesome. I had an amazing conversation with an extraordinary individual that I just met today and pretty sure that I will maintain contact with this individual for quite some time because uh went into it thinking it was going to be a certain kind of conversation and it went an entirely different direction and I couldn't be more pleased. So I got to talk to Jonathan from Black Duck Revival. Uh, you can find him on blackduckrevival.com and he's also on the gram on Instagram at Black Duck Revival. Now this guy runs, I guess it's a lodge you could say, uh, or a camp in Arkansas. Uh... Man, you know, he does a way better job of explaining it than I did, but he kind of brings people together through hunting, the culture of hunting, but he mixes in the food element, like the cooking of wild game. And I could tell by talking to him that he knows what he's doing in the kitchen and cooking great wild game meals. And, uh, you know, I didn't get to sample any of it, unfortunately. Uh, So I kind of thought that's how the conversation was going to go, like, The whole time I was planning on meeting this guy, we've been um, talking back and forth on Instagram for quite a while. And now that I'm in Arkansas, I had the opportunity to uh, drive down. He wasn't too far away, a little over an hour from where I'm staying. And uh, so we were able to hook up and have this conversation. But so I kind of thought it was going to be one of these like culinary foodie kind of things, which would have been great. Share some recipes and some tips and tricks on how to – process and eat wild game and hopefully in the future we can actually do that but this one really got cerebral i mean we really um got into like hunting philosophy and ethics and morality and man we went down some i mean you call them rabbit holes but we really just kind of peaked each other's minds in trying to see different perspectives and um, really kind of, I don't know, exploring the abstract parts of hunting culture. And I don't know, it was hard for me to really put um, good words to it. But uh, this is a good one. This one you might have to listen to a couple times. This one might take your concentration. This is the Thinking Man's podcast this week for sure. Um, Hopefully I didn't sound like a complete moron. Um, 
there was times where my brain was just going in a million different directions and I was trying to find the right words and um, I think it came off crossed all right but um, this dude he's a very smart individual very uh, articulate uh, man fantastic I look forward to having uh, more conversations with him hopefully I can get him up to Minnesota sometime and and we can kind of share the culture the upper midwestern culture if you will so that would be super cool so I want to get to this episode this is a great one um pour a uh, high-end scotch on the rocks and sip it and postulate the inner and outer workings of the outdoor culture and yeah okay whatever (laughs) anyways you're gonna love it check it out this is Jonathan from Black Duck Revival right here on the Full Scale Outdoors Podcast. Oh, here we go, boys. Go. Ooh, I love that sound. a good one. The old 870, there ain't nothing wrong with it. My buddy Austin still shoots a 870 pump. Good, good choke on there. I did the same thing. I bought, I bought that 870 used, like on a, on a hunt that almost didn't happen. Like I just already shared that story, so I'm not going to go over it again. Well, I'll give you, the, you haven't heard it, so I'll just give it real quick. I was out in North Dakota. I was out there working. I was stranded out there for the weekend, and I'm like, I got to go. And it was during the snow goose season, so I'm like, I got I to gotta go. My buddy was going to let me borrow his guns. We couldn't find any of his guns. His family were borrowing this, that, and the other thing. Sure. So I'm like, you know what? If I leave right now, I can get the shields, and I'll buy I don't care if it's a single shot, whatever. I'm like, I'm going. Something <laughs> that'll go bang. Yeah. yeah, so I went down there, and I got uh, – Picked that they had that 870 up there. I think it paid 194 or something. Bought a ghillie suit and I was yeah, off yeah. And, and I was off to the races. I ended up shooting a few. I didn't shoot that many. I think I shot three birds that weekend only, but I did get a band. So man, that's awesome. There was that. <laughs> so yeah, but I still have. I used that 870 for years and years and years. But finally broke down and I saved up to get a Vinci because I really like it. But mm-hmm. yeah, things been jamming on me lately. I'm not too happy about that. Man, I'm really and I'm no expert on probably anything. But I'm just super utilitarian. Like I like tools that can. I'm not easy on stuff. Uh, no, I, I'm I'm the guy that companies should hire. Like, give me what whatever what the thing is you're selling or creating or whatever. Give it to me. Let me use it for a season, and I, I will I will find the flaws in it. Yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if your thing is supposed to be super reliable, but you want to find the one weakness in it, I'm your guy. Sure. I will find it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Man, that, <laughs> if that, nothing that's else, just need, bad yeah. luck. <laughs> just bad luck, I'll find it. Like, this has never happened in a thousand uses. Well, guess what? <laughs> well, some of it's mainly because I'm tired and I'm, you know, I'm going to stick it in the case wet or, oh, yeah. you know, whatever, leave it in the truck. And Most people that know me would just say, you don't take care of, I don't care, take care of my shit. Sure. And they're not wrong. So, I mean, I can't even really argue with it, but it is what it is. I mean, if you're going, you, I mean, maintenance is one thing, but, uh, like people that have like big trucks that don't use them for truck stuff, like irritate me because it's. Like, I'm like, man, there's no need for it. Right. Yeah. Oh, no. Don't get me started. I got a buddy of mine. He bought a pickup truck, big pickup truck, and he's just he babies that thing, 
and he's always bugging me to take him hunting. And we were out in North Dakota working. He, he was an iron worker like I was. And me and another buddy, Dave Ford, shot this um, jackrabbit. And it mm-hmm. got cold. It was like 40 below zero that weekend. Like just stupid cold. And this thing was like rock solid. His legs are straight out. And we're all getting ready to go. I was, I was going to take off back to Minnesota. They were going to go somewhere and work in North Dakota. Everybody's coming out of the motel room, and they're loading up the truck. And I see he goes out to his truck. Shane goes out to his truck, and he's walking back. And I was hoping he, leave, he left his truck unlocked, but he doesn't. I mean, if he's gone away from that thing for three seconds, it's locked, yeah. which pissed me off because I was going to take that rabbit and put it in the cab like it in the driving? front seat of the passenger side, put oh. the seatbelt on it, take a broken cigarette, put it in his mouth. You know, I was going to fuck with him. But couldn't do that, so I just I just put it between the cab window and the box. Mm-hmm. That little gap there, it fit just perfect sure. right there. I'm like halfway home. I get this phone call, and he is irate, just irate about me. You don't fuck with another man's truck, ball. I'm like, dude, it's a frozen rabbit on the outside of your truck. What is your problem? And he just loses his mind. I'm like, you always want to. If I took you hunting, Shane, you killed a deer. Where would you put it? In the back of your truck. <laughs> like, Maybe on top what, of a tarp back What there. is your problem? <laughs> just That's just how he was. But I don't know. So here we are, Black Duck Revival in, uh, what's this town called? It's Brinkley, Arkansas. Brinkley, Arkansas. And I'm with Jonathan Wilkins. Wilkins, thank you very much. So I found you on Instagram. God, is it almost probably a year? I think I a while hit ago, you yeah, up the so. very first time. Uh, looking for podcast guests and i kind of liked what you were doing here so let's i'm gonna let you kind of describe well i'm sure there's a story because right now we're in an old church and this is like your headquarters or used to be an old church so i'm gonna let you i'm gonna give you the reins and give us the history of black duck revival man it's kind of still being written i think i Uh, bet it's man it started as me trying i was just trying to find a place that i could kind of shack up during duck season that i wasn't having to drive so far every morning i could stay for a couple of days uh i hunt the public land around here there's a lot of state-run wmas there's a lot of federal stuff river things you know we're in the we're in the middle of that big long contiguous chain of flooded bottomland hardwoods in arkansas that everybody thinks of when they think of hunting flooded timber and greenheads timber mallard hunts that's right. So I was just trying to find some place, and, you know, long story short, I ended up buying this old church. Uh, it was in almost tear-downable shape. Uh, it ended up being a total gut job, like even taking the floor joist out. We repurposed as much of that old lumber as we could, so that's what we framed up the bedrooms with and have some uh, kind of open beam stuff going on and just – and like I said, initially, I wanted just a, a place I could sleep or hang out at, but I had to redo it, so I just redid it really intentionally. And So why, um, what caught your eye about the church? Like, just was it super cheap? Like, was uh, it basically giving it away? I mean, you had to have known right away, like, okay, this is going to be – there's some work here. I knew there was work, but, I mean, honestly, this place had been – there was like five layers of flooring. There was like four lane, layers of – ceiling so i didn't know how rough it was <laughs> oh, until no. I st- every time i peeled something uh, back i was like oh sure. yikes oh yikes so yeah i got it because i it was something i could get other people didn't really want it uh understand so because it looks so rough but uh 
You know, it had decent bones, and I learned a bunch putting it together. I'm not a carpenter or a builder by trade, but, I, you know, hard work and YouTube. Thank God for YouTube. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. <laughs> but so anyway, it ended up being more of a financial investment than I initially anticipated. So I was like, how could I get some of this back? Uh, I said, man, maybe I could rent it out a little bit to other people that wanted to come and duck hunt. So I just built it the way I would would want a place to be, you know, mudroom, fenced parking, drive-through parking for boat stuff, uh, big open feel so that you can be cooking and playing cards and watching TV. I mean, you know, it's a social event, kind of a social place. Uh, and then as I, was, as I was doing that, I started thinking about, you know, my path to hunting and my hunting ethos and just my idea uh, or my ideas about maybe – you know, how I could kind of contribute to the conversation or the culture. And, uh, you know, like I'm a person of color. I didn't start hunting until I was an adult. Uh, I've just kind of had a different path than a lot of people do. And I thought about the barriers to entry that I had. And I said, man, you know, I've got a place. I could make this kind of a a home base to maybe talk about some of this stuff. Uh, I've got a background in cooking professionally. And the longer I hunted, the more I brought you know, the idea of a really well-prepared wild food into the equation and started doing some stuff like that for a living. And so I just wanted a place that I could put all my interest into. And like I said, just kind of have a base operation. So it kind of morphed into that. Uh, so, you know, the first year I just rented to some people that were coming to the area that wanted to hunt, people that had leases or uh, had I've you know rented like for a month at a time to a whole duck club or folks that just want to come here and try their hand at hunting public timber. And uh, then I bought the place next to it, fixed it up. It's an old fur trapper's uh, house, and he was like raising turtles in the backyard, crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> Turtle man. Yeah, you know, there used to be a decent meat market. A lot of folks in the Delta and southern Arkansas were doing that. Uh, I love me some turtle meat now. You know, I still have never had it, but I finally got the – I went down to Game of Fish headquarters and figured out exactly what all the rules were as far as uh, catching them. So I'll be doing that this year. But, yeah, and then this year I ran into a lot of different folks. I had both places open, and I used it uh, as a base to, to have this event that I called the Revival, which is where I invited some really cool, smart, nuanced hunters from different places and different backgrounds. So we had, like, a little bit of variance in age. We had men and women. We had people of color. And just everyone got together. We hunted specks and uh, snows and mallards for three days, bounced around in the Delta a little bit, and just cooked together and kind of shared our experiences and talked about, you know, how we hunt and why we hunt and taught each other some stuff. And it was just like a really – really rad thing to do so i'm gonna start doing that every year we do a fish fry here every year and i think maybe this coming up season we might we might put on a few hunts for some groups of people and kind of edge into that a little bit too now that's cool i love the story we have a similar story like i adult onset hunting i mean i, I hunted a little bit like high school senior my senior year maybe junior senior year um, didn't take it very seriously. We only cause I had a, a buddy of mine that that hunted, and he kind of got me into it. But nobody in my family hunted. I mean, I had a couple really? aunts and our uncles, cousins that hunted on my mom's side, but we didn't really, for whatever reason, 
uh, we just never really hung out with that side of my family that much. So I just didn't, I didn't have that wasn't part of my culture growing up. Now I grew up in the heart of where that culture would be found in northern Minnesota. I mean, everybody, you know, hunting season rolls around and everybody's showing up in school in blaze orange clothes. Or they just climbed out of the stand to get on the school bus and you know whatever. Yeah. Like it's it's always been around. But did they let you all out for the first day of deer season? Not in any of my schools. I know I I know like in Wisconsin they do that. Okay. I've heard of a few communities where it's like, well, if you didn't, no one's coming to school anyways. Yeah, there's I places mean, here. That's the thing. It's it. like they they just like nope, no one's going to show up. Like five people are going to be in school if you don't. You might as well just close it. Yeah, it becomes a holiday. Not in any of the schools that I went to wasn't like that. But honestly, like hunting, and I I, I fished. Like my dad fished. You know, we we did do that. But hunting and even trapping is always something that I just as far back as I can remember, I wanted to do. And it wasn't until, you know, I'm like my buddy Jim, he, he duck hunted. And so I went on a few hunts with him and we we're starting to get into it. And I think his uncle gave him a bunch of decoys and then somebody stole them. And then that was that. I mean, two broke high school kids. Yeah. We couldn't just run out and buy three bags of diver decoys. And, you know, like that, that was the end of that. And then it was probably another, I don't know, probably damn near 20 years before I, I got back into it, and I just remember saying, you know what, I think I'm going to get back in duck hunting. I went to the local store, Fleet Farm, in Minnesota, and I bought, like, three wood duck decoys and, like, two mallard decoys, went out in the river and threw them in there, and morning light came up, this duck came flying up the channel, swung on it, shot it, crumpled, I was like, god damn, well, that was easy, that was pretty fun. Then proceeded to miss, like, the next ten shots, but... Sure. Uh, but that was like, that was it. That it's was, man. It's that I've talked to people about this, that instinctual shot. Like I've kind of got this theory that, you know, you look at the evolution of human beings, like, I mean, you know what an adlatl is, mm -hmm. right? So an adlatl, so human beings are born instinctually knowing how to throw like from a little baby, right? You play ball with it. A little mm -hmm. baby can toss a ball and get it to you pretty much. Adelatl is a kind of a natural evolutionary extension of that. A bow and arrow is an extension of that. A shotgun is really an extension of that idea because it's all point, point and make happen. You know, so, I mean, you've probably seen this happen. You line up on a bird, you're going to water swat it, and then you completely miss it. Mm -hmm. But then something dive bombs in, yeah. you barely sit out of the corner of your eye, you pick up, boom, yep. you know, you feel like the best shot in the world. <laughs> it's because you're just running on pure instinct because yep. people are – are, that's something that people are designed to do. I had a I had an archery shot on a deer. The buck I got this year was just like that. It was a snap decision, instinct shot. After I clean missed a couple times before that. Sure. Short, like close, like, and I practice, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no Cam Haynes, but I mean, I'm pretty good in my backyard. I mean, I'm always putting it where I want to, pretty yeah. much out to forty yards. But for some reason, I don't know. I don't know. I missed some short 15, 20 yard shots. Thankfully, cleanly. Like, I didn't injure anything. It was like one was under and one was over. And it was just, Did you have a lot of time to watch them come in? Way too much time. Yeah. You just yeah, start to overthink. Way it. too much time. So then I'm beating myself up. You know, I'm in the stand and thinking, I got, man, did my sights get bumped? Like, I want to, when I get out of the stand today, I got to go, I got to sight this bow and something's mm -hmm. got to be, something's got to be off. There's no reason for me to have missed that bad. And all of a sudden, crash, crash! I hear, I see movement coming through, and here's this buck, and I see, you see he's got antlers on him. He's not a trophy buck by any stretch of the imagination, 
But where I'm at, I have I have seven acres, and my land is really is good right up till and kind of through our firearm season, which is no, the first couple of weeks of November. After that, it's terrible. I don't know. The deer just change their habits. If they, yeah. you know, whatever. They just stop using my land. And it's always just kind of a pass-through land anyways. Um, so it's like it was the Friday before gun season. I'm like, pressure's on. I'm like, really want to mm-hmm. fill my tag because I'm a meat hunter first and foremost. I mean, I love wild game. So he had a – but I've always wanted to shoot a buck, you know, with some antlers on it. Anyways. So he comes out and he, he's moving pretty fast. He's he's moving with a purpose, and he comes out. He's on the edge of my little clearing that I make. So I know it's like 35 yards to the edge of that clearing, and he's kind of he's in it a little bit. So he's all of 40 yards, and he's walking away from me. And I give him the old mac, you know, and he yeah. stops and he turns back over his shoulder. And I, for me to say it was a quartering shot is like a gentle euphemism because he was almost showing me his ass. I mean, he would like had a little bit. So I just did that in my did the quick geometry in my mind. Yep. You do that angle right through him. So I put the pin on his back, top of his back hip facing me. And hopefully yeah, it comes wow. out his shoulder in the front. I mean, this all happened like so sure. fast, but I actually remember like put the pin on his hip. I remember thinking that, you know, because the angle was just so extreme. I just had no time to think about it. He stopped. I drew back, pin, let it fly, and his probably never make that shot ever again in my life it was just perfect he came yeah. came out right in front of his far right shoulder he he went probably no more than 50 yards from where i shot him and dead as a doorknob i mean just ran in a straight line tipped over that's that's way easier to find them when they do oh, yeah i mean i was following when i went up to find the trail the blood trail i mean i didn't see him tip over i heard crash 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 and then dead silence now and he went on to my neighboring land which isn't the problem but um, he has a big stand of pines there, but the majority of his land is just like a big hay field. So I'm like, well, he either crashed through that and I don't hear him because he's in the tall grass not making much noise, or or he's dead. That's so when I finally got down and went to go look at the blood trail. At first I wasn't seeing anything, and I'm like, oh, crap. It sounded like a good hit. It was mm-hmm. a loud, hollow thud, you know, like long furnace sound not not that dead thump of hitting it in the rump or something you know like it was yeah. it was loud i felt pretty good when i heard the shot but now i wasn't finding blood right away. i'm like oh no then you really start doubting yourself and then all of a sudden i see a speck of blood and when i, when I look at that and it's like then your brain kind of knows what to focus on and then i kind of look up and we have this really tall like blue stem grass it's called and it it was just red spray all the way up and then once I saw that, I kind of looked in the direction. I could see the blood spray for 20 yards. I'm like, oh, this deer's fucked. It's <laughs> like so I knew right away. I was like, oh, he's done. Walked to the edge of the fence, just kind of made a quick line with my hand, and I saw his white belly laying there. I was like, sick. That was awesome. Yeah. But going back to what you said, that instinct, you know, to do it, aren't we like the only primates that have like, Something with our shoulder, articulated shoulders or our wrist bends a certain way or something that is uniquely designed for throwing, whereas like a lot of other primates I mean, that sounds, don't have that something. Sounds I think I've heard plausible. something like that. This is some serious bro science right now I'm throwing at you, but I'm pretty sure I heard that somewhere before, probably on the Joe Rogan podcast, but whatever. You no, know, I mean, it makes sense if you think about, if I think about how I've seen even like the, you know, the large primates act. Yeah, that. That would make sense. You know, actually, like winding back, you know, like the standard pitcher throw. Like, I just don't think they yeah. can make that arm movement. 
Heck, a lot of pitchers can't, man. That's what they're talking about. You know, that's right. Six foot eight standing on top of that mound. Huge, huge. But, yeah, where? how did we get down that rabbit hole? I don't know. This podcast is so good at doing that. I don't remember what we were talking about. I think we are talking about. about adult onset hunting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had similar backgrounds and in getting into hunting. So I totally do. I'll, I'll let you get back on track with, with what you did with that. Well, when when did it come from? Now, you said you, you, you know, built this place, and then you started inviting people out to it. But from what I gather, you somewhat humbly are describing this, but I, I feel like there's at some point in time like a deeper meaning kind of started coming out. Yeah, well, all of this, like, well, that's what I'm saying. It was, the whole thing was just kind of a natural progression. So, like, I got this place. I didn't, you know, I didn't uh, just contract the workout. Like, well, I couldn't have afforded to, you right? Know? So, I did probably seventy or seventy-five percent of it, you know, by myself. And so, you said you had a culinary. Sorry, I didn't mean to break. You had a. Um, you said you had a culinary background. Were you a chef, or what were you doing for a real job at that time? Well, man, I've always kind of uh, worked for myself unless I absolutely had to work for somebody <laughs> else. Uh, and I'd bebop around with that. So, I mean, I've done a million things. I mean, a, a really generous way to refer to it would be, you know, uh, a renaissance man. You know, perhaps a more honest way would just be, like, floundering. <laughs> but uh, – I used to try and keep my schedule. A bum, bum with the purpose? Well, I'm not quite to bum. <laughs> I don't, hopefully not. Well, with the purpose. Level. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, that's, the purpose is the important part. Well, you know, I think trying to find the purpose was, you know, I was just okay. kind of on the look, man. Like, I played music for a real long time, and so I tried to work jobs that would allow me to uh, jet out and go play shows for two weeks someplace else. Um, What'd you play? Uh, guitar and wrote songs and stuff. Did you sing? Yeah. I was in a band. Oh, I there sang. You go. I don't play guitar, though. I just sing. I'm one of those guys. Oh, man. Guy that packs in all the gear. I got my microphone. I'm good. You're Morrissey, <laughs> man. Uh, but, you know, and, like, I'm a real kind of cerebral dude. Like, I, I'm thinking about stuff a lot. I'm really, you know, like, a, I have a real passion, like, just kind of for the English language and, you know, just kind of wordy or whatever. But, uh, like, I can't be inside all the time i can't I, I need to be like moving myself and like i think people are supposed to get out of breath every day and i think you're you're supposed to see kind of a little bit of what you can endure so i was always working these like manual labor jobs i was like roofing houses or even cooking a lot of people don't think about cooking as being such a physical job i mean like if, oh. if, you, if you're line cooking and it's 130 degrees on top of a grill for 10 hours straight and you're standing up and you're lifting sacks of potatoes and just go 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 they're all real physical jobs and uh, so I just kind of ended up over the years, I just acquired one, I think, the ability to work, which is sometimes missing in people. And also just like a host of different skills, like perhaps not expert level. But if you think about it, like people's grandpas and great grandpas and stuff were coming back from World War II. They were getting kits out of Sears and building houses. Like yeah. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Right. You have to be willing to work. And so I just took time and effort and put the place together. And as I was doing that, you know, my, my idea became more refined, like what I wanted to do with it. Part of it was just as a financial investment, I had to try and find a way to recoup some of that investment. But then when I started really asking myself what I want to do, what I want out of life, you know, I'm doing something where I was getting paid really well, but I wasn't happy. Uh, 
I've, I've really felt like I was just sacrificing a lot of who I was to do it and just talked to my wife and we talked about what our priorities in life were. And I was like, man, I want to, I like hunting and fishing and being outside and thinking about it and writing about it and talking about it and cooking, you know, trying to do really like do an examination of Southern food and African-American food through the veil of wild food. Like I've got kind of these, all these things that make sense together, but I need a way to bring it all together. And so that's what Black Duck Revival kind of became. I started realizing, you know, like, I can make this platform whatever I want it to be. Uh, and uh, you know, we had to make some changes in our lives to uh, accommodate that, and we're still kind of working out the kinks. But, uh, yeah, so like I said, it's still evolving. We're on a fairly similar journey. I feel like uh, we've had, a, as you're talking, I see a lot of similarities to the, to the point I'm like, well, I know I'm. I know I'm not a person of color, so I can't question where my mother was forty last six years Norwegian? ago. <laughs> it's German, actually. Lugan, Is it Luganville? Yeah, German is what I've always been told. It's a uh, in the native tongue. It's a uh, very romantic of Luchenjul. which is gross. It's like you're clearing your throat out or something. It's disgusting. But hey, it's did you grow up I like got. like a Midwestern Lutheran? No, actually, we I grew up a uh, very strict um, Sabbatarian church. So we went to church on Saturdays. I grew up kosher. Sabbatarian? I've never heard that before. Uh, so we went to we went to church on Saturdays. Sure. Um, we're not, we weren't Seventh Day Adventists, but it was something similar to that. Somewhere between Seventh Day Adventist and Judaism is where my religion landed. My dad really, was man. a minister, so yeah. I mean, we didn't do no Christmas. No Easter, no Halloween. The only biblical holidays, if you will, that we observed were ones found in the Bible. So we did like Day of Atonement, Passover, stuff like that, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, yeah, dude, it was. Well, we should talk about that more sometime, man, because like my first two years in college, I was a religion major. Like I, really? I did like a really classic, like old school uh, humanitarian, like liberal arts degree. Man. Okay. So like, yeah, I did deep dives into like Kabbalism and uh, Orthodox Judaism and all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah, we. Uh, Not yeah. that it's weird, but just no. It's well, it's weird in, in that you're you're Judeo Christian, uh, traditional American upbringing. Yeah, well, you I know. was raised Lutheran, went to Catholic schools in St. Louis. Oh, man, you're all messed up. Grew up in, like, a traditionally <laughs> Jewish neighborhood. <laughs> well, that's, but that's good, though, with somebody that with the, a mind like yours, that, that analytical, that likes to see, you know, different perspectives on things. You're getting a Lutheran, Catholic, and, you know. Yeah, lots of, lots of rabbit holes and, to like, go down. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that would be – yeah, we can dive deep into that. I mean, it's – I was well-versed in the Bible growing up. Like I so said, my dad was a preacher. I, at one point in time, thought maybe I would become a preacher. And then uh, just quickly decided that that wasn't, that was not the pathway for me. Mm -hmm. um, mostly because I started questioning yeah. the Bible in general and religion. Um, and I think there's a lot, I think, I think there is definitely a purpose behind the Bible and, and every religious book, but I don't think it's the on-the-surface purpose that most people take it for. Sure, yeah. I mean, well, you know, and that's... Like I think I said, it's, that's a, it's a roadmap to life. I, mm -hmm. think it, there, I, I think there are some parts of a religious book that are meant for day-to-day. -day. I think there's some parts 
that are specifically meant for personal growth. Um, and then I think there's other parts that are meant as, uh, well, I think history and also, um, for a lack of a better term, um, kind of a warning, if you will, of like, and how to rebuild society. And uh, I think it's a veiled history of humankind. Yeah, no, well said, sense. man. No, I think if, you're, 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 you're looking at the nuance of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, that, and it can't be, nothing can be. Look, religion, hunting, I could take you down. You could ask a question like, that might seem more simple on the surface. Like, why don't black people hunt, right? And even that question, you're bringing, same with religion, you're bringing your cultural understandings of it, you're bringing your personal biases to it, you're bringing your the information you have, the information that you don't have, how that influences it. You start looking at things. There's, and, and all of this, man, there's laws that were enacted. There was power structures. There were migration patterns. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying, like, being yeah, why don't Why don't black people in America hunt? Because if you go to Africa, yeah. I mean, or, shit, or, or you're doing it for right here. There's, hundreds of thousands of years. There's... there's <laughs> There's way more uh, people of color hunting than most people think, but it's about what you see. You know, right. like most of what people really understand beyond the small sphere they live in is what they see on TV mm-hmm. or in movies or on social media, right? So, uh, like one short answer could be, well, you know, you could talk about uh, you talk about regionally, like maybe in North Dakota you don't have very many people of color hunting because there's not very many people of color. You know yes, what I mean? There are not. Or like in Arkansas, <laughs> you, uh, there's more, there's more hunting licenses sold to people of color than a lot of folks would realize. But percentage wise, most people of color that I've come across, and some of this is anecdotal, anecdotal, but, uh, like just simply said, most folks in Arkansas hunt on private land. They don't hunt public land. And there's reasons for that. You know, you can go back in living memory and, you know, uh, the rural wild places, you know, particularly of the South, were places of danger and were places where <laughs> violence was right. visited, visited yeah. upon black people. Yeah, for so sure. So there's like a generational knowledge and an idea that goes along with that. Uh, so, and that's, that's, I mean to say is that it's hard to examine anything in a vacuum. And when you start looking at most subjects, you know, especially some of these fundamental things, you know, you're talking about uh, the way that people interact, uh, how the, the methods that people find to control those interactions. Like it's never going to be as simple as you think it is on the surface. And one of the things about that is that the more you know, the harder it is to maintain a narrow vision. Yeah, that's you know? for sure. Yeah, education, it's, you almost, well, we see this, I mean, not to get super political, well, I won't get super political because this is kind of a a nuanced thing, but for someone to get, to continue an education, people that have gone on to college and had and higher education, but still, you know, tenaciously hang on to a very narrow-minded viewpoint of a subject whether that be religion or politics or whatever like this this team mentality you know the identity politics like this is just what i am and i know so many people that are intelligent well-read that like 
I can't believe whatever opinion they're sharing with me at the moment that some sort of closed-minded, narrow point that I'm just I kind of I kind of stop listening to them because my brain's just like, how are you telling me this right now? You, how do you have such a narrow viewpoint of whatever this subject is? You know that. Because the more, like you said, the more you grab, I don't know if I'm making any sense right now. No, no, the more, absolutely. Are. The more information you grab, it's like you said, it's hard to maintain that narrow point of view because you start you start taking in more information. You start seeing, or at least you hope, you start seeing more perspective. But I still see so many people in this in today's day and age, even highly educated people, that just stick to their guns that almost don't want to change their perspective as if somehow if they change the stance on any particular issue one way or the other, whatever it is, that that somehow is a strike against them or that they were wrong. Maybe they just don't like to admit that maybe they were wrong. Maybe it's a pride thing. I don't know. I mean, I reached a turning point in my life where I almost threw my hands up in the air and go, shit, I don't know anything. Everything I thought I knew is complete and utter bullshit. I mean, so then I, really just started looking at everything in a new light and trying to gather as much more and different information as I could. You know, it's I'm to the point now where it's like, I like when I have a paradigm shift. I like mm-hmm. when all of a sudden I go, oh, shit, I never thought about it that way. Oh, damn, that changes this, 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 and the other thing. Yeah. If you look at, you know, with the new lens you just uncovered, you know, that that fascinates me. I don't see it as a shout on me, you know. I mean, I guess in the world of politics, someone would say I'm a flip-flopper, you know. I mean, like, because I changed my stance on something. Well, if, listen, if you, I'm not so married to my ideals. If you come to me with a well-thought-out, articulated argument on whatever subject we're debating that makes me stop and think, I very well might moderate my view if I can't then come back with my own well-thought-out articulate response as to why I still don't agree with that or why I still think it's this way or that way or, you know, whatever the subject is. And that could be religion. That could be politics. That could be hunt. That can, that can go down to something just as simple as what's the best decoy spread to run. You know, really it's like, if you just go, Oh, you got to run, you got to run a J with the, the hook in there. And that's, that's just how I've always done it. That's how it is. I mean, I read an article about it. That's just what you do. Well, you know, growth, fluidity, nuance, these are all things they require courage, really, because you have to expose yourself. You have to be vulnerable. You have to – there has to be the possibility of you being embarrassed or not successful or, or you know, feeling less than maybe a little bit. But, like, that's kind of that period – that's how you grow. You know, stagnation is really based in fear. A lot of people – I would even say most people – are so consumed with not wanting to look vulnerable that they'll limit themselves for their entire lives. Uh, and I think, you like, let's go back to hunting since that's what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I'm looking at that right now with the way that I learned to duck hunt and the fact that I think there's a lot of science, and this is people smarter than me, biologists and wildlife biologists and specifically waterfowl biologists, are saying, you know, there's a lot of differences – in the Mississippi Flyway, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, you can look at the duck harvesting no- numbers in Louisiana, which is the very bottom of that funnel. And you can say, man, they're not killing, the, they're killing half as many birds as they used to be. 
You know, and like we were talking about with the reason there's so many specks in the Arkansas Delta now, because there's less habitat for them in Louisiana, like their traditional uh, wintering grounds. And so that's changing the entire waterfowling culture of this place that's traditionally known for killing lots of mallards in timber. There's fewer, there's fewer mallards here than there was 10 years ago. If you look at the numbers, there's a lot more snow geese. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of snow geese. There's a tremendous amount of speckle belly geese. You know, 20 years ago, you didn't have, you know, maybe a thousand guys from Minnesota coming <laughs> to the Arkansas <laughs> Delta in February to try and kill thousands of snow geese. Yeah. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't see it. Now, you know, and then you start seeing it just for the conservation hunt. And now you're starting to see it throughout regular waterfowl season. Right. Uh, if what I have found is that doing the same old thing, chasing ducks, is not successful. There's a lot of pressure. There's fewer birds. Uh, the weather conditions are changing a whole lot. It was an incredibly warm year. I feel like the average temperature all winter was 50 degrees. I didn't break ice a single time. Uh, we were talking about these telemetry uh, studies where you can see how far a duck or a goose can actually fly in one day. So I don't think it's – this idea of, oh, they're moving from the fields to the timber, I don't think it's that all the time. I think it's they're saying they went down to Louisiana because season was open in Missouri. They're bouncing back around there. They're hanging out in Arkansas. It's cool for two weeks, and then opener for Arkansas happens, and they're like, man, maybe I'm going to fly all the way up to the top of the country. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a couple different things going on there as far as obviously our land use practices are going to – have a huge factor yes. on bird migrations because it's 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 a habitat issue, it's a food issue. It's you know where where is the food? I mean, most ducks really aren't afraid of humans that aren't shooting at them. I sure. mean, cuz agriculture has directly impacted their numbers and changed their diet. You know, it's like you were saying they used to go in Louisiana, but now the moment they harvest that rice, they flood those rice fields and they raise crawfish, crawfish. in there. So, well, why would – what does a snow goose have to do with a flooded out field with crawfish in it? That's yeah, not what or they're Or dabbling look- ducks in the water's too yeah, deep. They that's can't not get what to the they're bottom. looking for. Yeah. They're not looking for that, so they're going to stop where the food – they're going to go where the food is. Mm-hmm. They're just they, – they'll figure it out. The and freeze I, line is different. You know? And I don't, I don't, I don't real. I don't think – I don't think hunter pressure, hunting pressure moves ducks as much as people think, at least not 1,000-mile moves. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to fly to the next – field over like they're not gonna be like oh crap there's a gunshot let's let's try iowa listen people hunt all the way up and down like, yeah there's, there's a gun everywhere it's like there isn't a state <laughs> that they're gonna find refuge from hunting like yeah yeah the, they're not making those kind of moves we, we hear that in minnesota all the time with and we started the early goose season up there in september and for a while there you couldn't you weren't allowed to hunt water you could only field hunt for them um, because the the idea was you're gonna blow all the ducks out of the state before the duck season opens. It's just not the case. Yeah, you're gonna blow them off that particular body of water, but Minnesota, being the land of ten thousand lakes, there's some place for them to go. They'll find a place. A lot of a lot of it's in town. You got your wastewater treatment facilities. You know that those water treatment plants hold a ton of birds. Do they really? Oh yeah. Yep. I, as as a goose hunter back home, I mean that's. I like finding that. I like finding a water treatment plant that's roosting geese because they can't. I can hunt those geese for weeks because their roost never gets bothered. 
no one's going in there and jumping it. No one's going in there and hunting it. So they have a safe place to start their day every day. When you think geese, are you thinking Canada's? Canada, yeah. Yeah, Canada. see, there's people are killing them here. I think more incidentally than people really putting out spreads. But, like, that's that's a very poignant example of how things change where, as I understand it, you know, 25 years ago, there was a Canada hunting culture here. There was huge migrations of Canada's coming to Arkansas. Like, they don't come down here anymore. They stop, and, you know, I believe up in Illinois. Uh, I've never killed one, you know, but 20 years ago, people weren't, seeing snows all over the place well there's a lot i mean the whole reason i'm down in arkansas right now is for the spring conservation order on snow geese mm-hmm. because their numbers are out of control and they're over grazing the tundra why do we have why what happened to their numbers why did they explode well it's our farming practices it just goes back it's the way we leave you know we've got harvested wheat fields all along the prairie region from canada down through the dakotas they cut that they cut that wheat and they leave it sit all winter long. I mean, they have they have a food source from the moment they leave the nesting grounds, their migration route all the way south, and then they have a food source all the way back north like they've never had before. If you think mm-hmm. about before we started tilling up every acre of land that we possibly could and clearing timber to have another field, you know, you just didn't have as many of those agricultural fields. You had more stands of timber, which obviously doesn't serve a snow goose well at all. Sure. You had tracks of, um, you know, just wild prairie where you have three, four foot tall grasses. That doesn't serve a snow goose well either. Then they're left to being on water's edge, you know, So the, that, and then those water's edge can only hold so many snow geese on top of the fact that they're as healthy as they've ever been. So when they're going and they're breeding and they're nesting, they're having record hatches because they've never been healthier as a species. You know, they don't, Hmm. that migration isn't as arduous as it used to be back in the turn of the century. You know, they would build up their fat reserves in the summertime and that was so that they could make their trip to the south and back to the north to breeds and they would survive off that fat. Yeah, they you never know, they never lose that fat anymore. That's really interesting because, and you know, I don't, I pay attention to kind of my little spot of the country. But you know, like I told you about, they're growing more, as I understand it, they're growing more rice in southern Missouri than they are in Louisiana now, which is a big reversal than how it's been. That'll stop ducks in Arkansas. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the things that made you know Stuttgart, Arkansas, the quote unquote duck capital of the world, was that. In 1901, in that region of the country, the Grand Prairie, they started planting rice. Now, years ago, the rice harvesting methods, you know, 30 years ago, they'd run a combine through there and they'd leave 700 pounds of rice per acre. As I understand it, ducks will feed a field down to about 50 pounds of rice per acre. That's when it's worth, it takes more energy to get it than it's worth. But now these uh, laser-leveled fields, these really efficient combines, they're leaving about 70 pounds of rice. So you got 20 pounds of rice before the ducks don't want to be there anymore. So an acre that could support a certain number of birds for a week or two weeks supports them for one night. Right. And then it makes sense that they're not there. It comes down to food. I mean, and like with the, the Canada's, 
the reason you don't see them there, you know, and like so we had a mild winter here. Those 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 big northern hawkers, like they re- and even we have mallards that never leave Minnesota. Twenty below zero, mm-hmm. they're still there. Canada's too. As long as they have open water and they can get to the fields, they'll stick around. And that's that's more determined on snowfall than it is cold temperatures. I mean, a, a mallard and a Canada goose are are very well equipped to handle cold temperatures with yeah. the down and the fat and the body fat. So as long as they have food and water, they're going to stick around. They're only going to go as far south as they have to. I mean, when I on my way down here, I went through Des Moines. There's a shit ton of honkers in Des Moines. I mean, it, what's keeping like water open at those sorts of temperatures? Just wind. Uh, you got power plants along the river. Okay. Just the river itself. Just warming just up the that current, water. Just the current in the river itself okay. is going to, you know, I think generally doesn't freeze in some spots. Mm-hmm. You know, you've always had some smaller spots. Trout steam, trout streams, a lot of times won't freeze, but you can't really hold a ton of birds there. But it'll hold, you know small pockets of mallards and stuff like that but obviously you know if we have a milder climate uh not to get into a climate change debate but whether it's you know man-made or not you have an ebb and flow of of mild and cold winters and and the they just adjust you know i don't think i don't think we give wildlife enough credit i don't think we give nature enough credit in its ability to adapt you know if you look at the history of the earth, the last 10,000 years has been remarkably stable mm-hmm. weather-wise. Uh, outside of that, crazy spikes up and down. We're not talking about one degree. We're, you know, we're talking about ice ages and rapidly melting following an ice age. And if you look at the fossil records of the animals that we have now, they've all been around. I mean, nothing has evolved in the last 10,000 year, 10, years. So what we have has been around for hundreds of thousands of years they've survived they're they're survivors so i always try to find this like middle ground you know you got the hysteria and the hyperbole hyperbole of of climate change that we're gonna we're killing the earth we're gonna kill all these animals and while some inevitably will not make it that that can't change and part of that is because we've had such a stable ten thousand years Animals haven't had to adapt. You know, you go down, um, let's come and go down a rabbit hole right now, but if you go down the evolutionary path, if you're a specialist, you are almost certainly doomed to go extinct at some point in time. Because I mean, just less wiggle You, you pigeonhole yourself. If you are a panda and you only eat bamboo, or you are a koala and you only eat eucalyptus, anything that interrupts that very narrow cycle of your your food cycle you're screwed if that's your only source of food you're screwed i mean what that's it's not it's not evolutionary evolutionarily advantageous to have a single food source and look at coyotes coyotes eat everything fruits grasses bugs mice deer They'll eat everything. They're very adaptable. We have them in New York City. They're in downtown Chicago. They're in downtown Minneapolis. They can live anywhere. They will, No matter what happens to the climate, I promise you the coyote will be there. 
Well, I'm I'm going to challenge you a little bit on this because good. you're making. I mean, you are making uh, good and fair points, but like so, the coyotes, right? So as I understand it, there's more coyotes in North America than there's ever been in history. Correct. And their adaptability and their survivability survivability is a big part of that. You know, these are animals. It's coyotes, uh, like a a red fox is a good example of that. They have a raccoon. They've benefited in a lot of ways from uh, human intrusion into the wild. But one of the reasons the coyotes are doing so good is because human beings, it wasn't really an evolution thing. It was that human beings got rid of the bears, the wolves, you know, their competition, the things that they competed with for a lot of uh, a lot of their food sources. That's why there's so many coyotes right now. It's the same with uh, white-tailed deer. There's more white-tailed deer than there's ever been in the history of North America. Absolutely. But that's because they don't have these large predators. They don't have mountain lions and in North America. Mountain lions, jaguars, the grizzly, you know, slash brown bears been almost completely extirpated for most of its natural habitat. Uh, other ungulate species that were all over the place, elk, you know, moose are being uh, run out of even northern places, mountain caribou, you know. So I take your point, and I think it's well made, but I don't want to gloss over some of this other stuff. Yes, well, there's it's, lots of it's variation. Too, I think what you're saying is twofold. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think either one of us is wrong. I think there's multiple facets to this. Um, the Coyote, there's a really good book by um, Dan Flores called Coyote mm-hmm. America. Have you yeah. read that one? It's I'm great. aware of it, and I've read excerpts. Yeah, I, it's a great book. It's a great read. And in there, he talks about how they, how the coyote uh, has responds to persecution. So you're right. We eliminated wolves. Yeah, eliminated you're talking wolves. about the breeding cycle stuff? Yeah. yeah. We eliminated wolves. Um, there's more deer around there ever have been. There's more livestock. So it kind of goes back to what we said about the, the ducks and how they've changed their patterns because of the food source that we've given them. Because of the way man lives, we have created these habitats and an unlimited food source for the coyote. Now, they used to only be on the plains west of the Mississippi. But because of our, when we tried to, well, we did extirpate the wolves, but we also attempted to extirpate coyotes and we couldn't do it. Like they just, we could never get rid of coyotes. They just keep moving because they're more adaptable than the wolf was. Mm-hmm. The wolf is not adaptable. It's very, it's very hard-headed, if you will, in the way it likes to operate. Whereas if you take a wild, if you were to take, and now this is just me thinking, you know, if you were to trap a wild coyote, a, a prairie coyote that's used to, you know, eating pheasants and, and, and uh, jackrabbits and he's not, he's really not affected by the workings of man, let's say. And you drop that thing off in, in a suburb, in a county park, in a suburb, or whatever. He'll be fine. He'll figure it out. By the week's end, he's like, there ain't no jackrabbits around here. Why don't we eat that mouse? You know, yeah, like, I mean, they're going to make hey, a that guy left a, That guy left a dish of dog food out here. It doesn't smell too bad. I don't think I'm going to eat that. And I mean, coyotes eat crab apples. They, eat, I mean, they eat – their diet isn't large – not only large uh, – ungul- or that word i hate that word you just said it ungulates you got it there it is deer (laughs) large hooved animals they will they will eat them uh, but they're they're much more adaptable and they'll they'll eat many things white-tailed deer yes we have removed a lot of their predators on top of removing their predators we're clearing land we're making more agriculture 
which is they are just tailor suited to live in. I mean, there's so many deer, right? And, you know, golf courses are great for deer. I mean, mm-hmm. good that, for geese. That good for kind Canada's, of great yeah. for great for geese. That kind of habitat, uh, which we don't really perceive as habitat because we've, you know, changed it to suit our needs, but they, it suits them very well. Now, one of the issues that we have in Minnesota, we're, our moose population as well is way down. And they're finding that that's due to, even a lot of people like to blame the wolves because Minnesota has a lot of wolves. We've always had a lot of wolves. Even when the Western states were trying to reintroduce wolves, the pack in Minnesota has always been stable and healthy. You never, you guys never lost wolves? No, never. They, they, we've always had wolves in Minnesota. At, at the peak of the war on wolves in the West, Minnesota has always had wolves. Never had a lot of people in northern Minnesota, okay. for one. Um, large tracts of heavily wooded timber, lots of moose, you know, just not, you know, there was plenty. It was perfect moose habitat, plus Canada's right there. I mean, they can come and go pretty much as they as they need to. But the more and more we cut down trees in northern Minnesota to make more agricultural land, the deer are moving with it. The prime habitat for moose is getting smaller, but the real problem with the moose is a brainworm that deer carry that is transmitted through um, the life cycle of, like, slugs and snails. So without getting too in-depth on that whole life cycle, basically before there wasn't a lot of mixing between white-tailed deer and moose. They had very different habitats, but now due to our farming practices and the way we clear land – they're coming in contact more, and so now the wolves are getting this brain worm, and they are not suited. They don't have a resistance to it, so that's killing the moose. Whereas deer can get the brain worm, and it doesn't kill them. They just live with it. You know, like a lot of a lot of animals and a lot of parasites have a sort of symbiotic or at least a mm-hmm. neutral relationship where it doesn't harm them. It's just part of uh, part of that life cycle. Well, with the moose, it's not part of their life cycle, and it kills them. So that's what They're we're finding that with in our research. a lot, I think. Bats have carry, carry a host of parasites that they can live just fine with. Yeah, but other I stuff it. gets it. Yeah, they they. I mean, the way they mass congregate in their caves and they the guano everywhere. It's it's a breeding ground of bacteria. Yeah, they're tough. It's ugh, gross. heck. Look at smallpox. You know, look at measles. And there's entire populations of people that had no had no resources to fight that stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, when the Europeans came over here, there was no smallpox. It's 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 a perfect example. It's perfectly analogous to the whitetail coming into the moose. The moose are not the evolutionarily caught them off guard. They weren't. They were never exposed to the brain worm before. Yeah. Now all of a sudden they are. They don't have the tools. No, I think nature over time, and that could be five thousand years. It could be ten thousand years. It could be fifty thousand years. Over time, you know, just the natural selection and Darwinism, if you will. I think the moose will. Eventually, you know, the the moose that are genetically predisposed to be more resistant to the brain worm will be the ones that successfully live long lives, pass on those genetics to other generations, and eventually it won't be a big deal. But what that time frame is, who knows? You know, Or if enough stay alive to give it time. Right. You know? I yep. mean, it, I'll tell you what's really weird to think about. Because if you think about Great Britain... You know, a lot of these places in Western Europe, 
that have had large concentrated populations for a very long time. You don't think of them as being largely wooded, and you don't think of there being large predators there or large animals there. But it's like, no, man, people did that in like 400 years. Mm -hmm. Like red stag and brown bears, and they weren't just only in Siberia and these far outreaching places. They were all the way across. There were these huge blocks of uh, a forest. Yeah, wolves. Uh, Yes, wolves all over the place. Um, yeah, it's it's there's a, re- there's a reason you have fairy tales with wolves in them. <laughs> there's a very valid reason. They were a part of everyday life at some point in time in Europe. That's a wild thing to think about. But, you know, now, uh, and, you know, think about like a red stag. You think about red stags, you think about New Zealand. You don't think about where they originally came from because yeah. they're gone there. They're, yeah, they're not, they're not there anymore. Yeah, and the reds. I mean, there's no predators on New Zealand. I mean, except just, for man, just two-legged ones. Yeah. yeah, two-legged ones. Thank God, or that place would be completely overrun. I mean, they already do call hunts out there. You know, I mean, yeah, people go over there. They want a big giant rack, and you know, whatever. But, um, but those critters wouldn't be there without people either. You know what I mean? Like people oh, brought them sure. over there, oh, introduced sure. it, wiped out a bunch of native stuff. Uh, and you know, you think about the peculiarities of something that exists on an island, whether it be a person, a plant, an animal. Uh, I think I think we look at specialization as a weakness, but it might be the only way, it might be the most uh, productive way to survive in a small locked environment. I mean, it often is. Well, I think it, uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think uh, I have, <laughs> I have a very unique, opinion on like invasive species i think we actively should avoid them but there are times when they happen whether you know we man-made causes or whatever i when it comes to nature i really try to keep morality out of it meaning humans are very good at however we find a chunk of land What's on that chunk of land when we discover it, in air quotes, because who knows who actually discovered mm-hmm. it, when, what, where, what time. But as, let's just say, modern culture stumbles upon this chunk of land, as we find it, that's how that's supposed to be for forever. And we actively try to keep it that way. Perfect example is Isle Royale and Lake Superior, the moose and the wolves. They've been studying it for eons. They're trying to keep them there. But going off of, um, you know, fossil records going off of tribal stories that that wasn't always a moose and wolf island it used to be a lynx and caribou island yeah but yeah over, i've heard about over this time it's changed right now they're they're because the genetic diversity wasn't there there's only so many wolves and there's a ton of inbreeding they haven't been doing well they've been dying off wolves have been leaving like when when you get a cold enough winter that allows the wolves to cross the ice they just they come and go wolves come and go I mean, that's how the moose got there in the first place. I'm sure a moose walked across the ice at some point in time to find that island to begin with. And so we actively try to keep that cycle of life going. And I think artificially. I mean, really, if you want to study that, you should watch it from afar. And what happens, happens. I mean, if the wolf population crashes and then the moose overtake the island and they over... They overgraze it, and then obviously they're going to get sick, and then they're going to die back, and then 
plants will grow back and then all of a sudden you get a cold winter some wolves travel out there find an inexhaustible resource of moose and the whole process just starts all over again there's nothing right or wrong about it i mean another example i'll give you is like let's say you know we have these islands off in the pacific some of them have goats on it like mm -hmm. goats are obviously not native there they were dropped off there on purpose usually by like um, cook the explorer cook because it was he knew he would come back around. There was a food source waiting for him there. Did the same thing with pigs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, man introduced these things. They changed the ecosystem on that isolated island forever. But let's, just, let's say that there's a, a giant typhoon, giant storm, knocks down. There's, a, there's an island that has nothing but uh, birds and insect life on it. No reptiles at all, no rodents, and it's this paradise for birds and bugs. But there's this huge storm and knocks down a bunch of palm trees, and there's big rafts of shit floating around in the ocean. And in the process, a couple lizards trapped in the debris, maybe a mouse or two, and this floats across, lands on that island. They get off the lizards and the mice. The mice find all this wild grasses that they've, you know, an inexhaustible resource for them. The lizards find bugs everywhere, but they're eating all the bugs and all the birds that were counting on eating those bugs. Now they die off. Now we would look at that as like, well, that was a natural process. Like that's just that's just what happens. But if man goes over there on a on a boat and a mouse jumps off a boat and the same thing happens, it's a sin. If we change the environment, it's viewed as a bad thing. But if it happens accidentally, in air quotes, by some natural process, well, that's just what happens. Like, why is it wrong? The earth isn't static. The earth never stays the same. Change generally happens slow, but at certain times, due to cataclysmic events or storms or whatever, things change. It's neither right, wrong, or indifferent. It just is life will be challenged by other life that i mean that's the history of the world yeah no look man i uh i take your point i think you're my inclination is that you're stretching it a little bit too much man because i think that <laughs> well i think very that, possible i think that there's, there's a real argument well no i mean like and that's why i like to start off i think we actively i think we need to be smart i think we actively avoid impacting the natural world that way we actively avoid artificially if you will introducing life that wasn't there before i i am 100 percent agreement that we should do that but when and if it happens it doesn't have to be the sky is falling this is the worst thing ever like well it's a new reality now i mean there look at pheasants i mean nobody bitches about pheasants because they don't have really a negative impact but they are not from North America. That is no, a yeah, Chinese from, bird. Yeah, they're from Asia. They, they are an invasive species that we actively preserve. Yeah, and see, look, There's I'm going to go back to the forever. I'm going to go back to the point of <laughs> I'm going to go back to the point of nuance because I think that most reasonable people would say that is that look, human beings have irrevocably impacted the earth. They're going to continue to do so. Uh, and maybe we are in some in a lot of places at the point where we're, you know, sticking our finger in the dam. But 
I don't think that we can throw our hands up and say, you know, this process is, is as natural or valid as another one. Because I think that, you know, I think you could make the argument that the last 200 years of humans on Earth could be viewed as a cataclysmic event. Well, I think some people do do view it that way. Uh, now, I think it – now, look, I think people – People and the way they've impacted the environment, I mean, they're capable of some real bad, but capable of real good. Look at the reintroduction of turkeys in the U.S. Like, we, we brought them back. Look at the reintroduction of black bears in Arkansas. You know, Arkansas, you know, in the 1800s was home to probably 50,000 black bears. It was known as the black bear state. Daniel Boone came here and hunted black bears. You know, by the 20s in Arkansas, there was about 50 black bears left, and they were down in the swamps the lower White River drainage down by Louisiana. They reintroduced bears. They traded, uh, they traded native game from Arkansas with uh, people from Canada and maybe Minnesota or Wisconsin. And they did that, reintroduced some in the 50s and 60s. And the reintroduction has been so successful that the Arkansas has seeded black bears into Oklahoma. They now have a season. They've seeded black bears into Missouri. They're working on getting a season. They've seeded them down into Mississippi. Uh, do I think it'll ever be 50,000 black bears in Arkansas again? No, I don't. Do I think that 50,000, if you could snap your fingers and make that happen, that makes sense for the world that is now? No, I don't. You know, so, I mean, there, there has to be a balance of, of action, responsibility, and uh, and blame, yeah, I think, well, too. We have turkeys where there never was historically turkeys. Sure. And, again, it goes back to our practice. We've cleared land. We have more agricultural land. We have more land that is suitable for turkeys, and we keep pushing their range. In Minnesota, We it just keeps getting pushed further and further north. And some people bitch about it. They think there's a, a line of uh, thought. I don't know if there's any truth to it, but a lot of the dyed-in-the-wool grouse hunters blame turkeys for lower grouse numbers because they're competing for similar food and habitat. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, it's out there. That, I mean, that just goes to you can't make anybody happy or everybody happy. But, um, no, I'm not saying, you know, throw our hands up. And it's just more of um, is it right or wrong? You know, let's say I, I use this example all the time. You have a trout stream, native brook trout swimming in it. They've been there for thousands of years. Beaver comes along. Dams it up, slows the current, the water warms up, kills all the brook trout. It's not, you know, they can't take the warmer water. Is that wrong? Was it wrong of the beaver to do that? Well, I mean, okay, here's, here's where I'm going to challenge you on this. Because you're trying to use a micro example as a macro, as a justification for macro. Well, it's because beavers haven't invented planes and ships. I mean, just because well, yeah, they, they can't, just because they can't affect a large swath of land on a on a continental scale doesn't mean they wouldn't if they could yeah man i can't get with you on that man. <laughs> I, I, I mean i get i get what you're saying i mean this is i'm playing devil's advocate yeah i mean again i'm not a proponent for change i'm not a opponent i am not proposing that we haphazardly just go change the earth to suit our needs that is that's not what i'm saying at all it's more of a philosophical playing devil's advocate sure. like trying to temper that kind of knee-jerk 
this is the worst thing ever. You know, you hear this human loathing kind of narrative a lot where it's like, man, it's just so bad. We, we're just the worst thing that has ever happened to this planet. Are we? We're all, we could also be the best thing that's ever happened. Well, I think it's – I think, look, I think that – because I think we could go in a circle on this for a long time. Oh, for I think, sure. I think that actual – that maybe we could get to the same place on the fact that – and that I think this is applicable to so much in life, but that truth is – Truth is situational. It's based in the experience of a place or people. Uh, intention matters, you know. But that truth really is relative, and it it's it's an influx thing. You know, migrations are a flux. Uh, there's malleability in our understanding. You know, it's also I think it's I think it's uh, hubretic to think that our understanding of whatever processes right now will be the same understanding that we have in the future, which people are, that's what people like to do. Like go back to the point we were talking about. People want things to stay static in a world where things are constantly in flux. And one of those things is our understanding. So our absolute breast breast, our absolute best practices well-intentioned as they may be, we may find out in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years that it was all wrong, you know? And, it, and morality even is our understanding of what is moral and what is not is going to change. So I think really the approach to have is to be open-minded, to use the best information you have at the time, for whatever it is, and then to be willing, like you said, to have a to have a shift, to have a big shift in your understanding of something, and that might facilitate big shifts in how and how you uh, go about doing something. And that could be land management, that could be agriculture, that could be how you hunt a specific species, that could be in your marriage, how you <laughs> right, yes. how you parent. Absolutely, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. That's the that's the mark of being a thoughtful, nuanced. Uh, person who who is really you know that's one of the cool things about being a person is that you don't have to stagnate that potential is limitless you know uh if not stifled and given effort you know there's an equal and opposite you know every action has the equal and opposite reaction and that's that's physics and that's society i mean like you said we could do things that turn out to be wrong in 100 years we didn't know it was wrong but in 100 years we're like well that wasn't very smart that that had this consequence you know not every consequence is immediate sometimes Mm -hmm. they take time to develop you know we through the pesticides that we used in the 70s with ddt you know we're really just recovering from that one of the reasons we have so many eagles now and ospreys and even waterfalls because we stopped using ddt and and now look and at the debate right now with dicamba. You know, here in Arkansas, farmers trying to get rid of that pigweed. Yeah. You know, we're talking about 2018, 2019, 2020. We've put people on the moon, and <laughs> folks are using all this research and science, and they're spraying something that is devastating their neighbor's crops. Yeah, right. So, like, uh, yeah, man, I think that 
because you know we've really gone this conversation has gone all over the place but what i like about it is it it to, to try and bring it back is Good that luck. well no <laughs> I, I think it can be man because i mean hunting is hunting is the way that i i'm really using hunting not just as like a physical excursion not just as a way to test myself not just as a way to feed myself and my family it's my way of examining these bigger things we're talking about because all of these ideas that we've been discussing uh excuse me morality ethos uh the the lens you view the world through uh mor- morality in the sense of giving and taking life and who has control over that and what th- what's ethical and what's not and what your understanding of ethics is and what isn't uh value in food you know is it all right to kill a buffalo and just take the tongue or should like we were talking about i'm killing snow geese and taking breast legs thighs gizzards you know heart uh i've cooked duck tongues you know i've gone all the way down uh it's it's i look at it as an existential examination in some parts an existential examination with incredibly practical and tangible uh methodologies involved in it so I think there's room for all of these discussions that we're having. We can talk about stuff on a micro to a macro level. We can talk about, I think there's room in hunting for data and science and completely philosophical conversations about a soul. Absolutely. And you said you had people coming in at 3 o'clock, right? Yeah. So we got to wrap this up. Dang, that sucks. We went down a really awesome rabbit hole. That was a really good conversation. But I did want to, before we bolt out of here because i wanted i thought this was gonna be more of a food a food uh, episode because i i like to dabble in culinary arts as well without any training whatsoever completely 100 percent self-taught but i am constantly finding this you know and i know you've heard it a million times yourself like people that actively hunt waterfall a lot of them still don't like eating waterfall and it's because it can't cook. It's because you can't Very cook. simply. You just ruin it. You, you're yeah. cooking that thing well dead. You're doing everything in, in, in your power to just make it not good. Uh, man, a speck or a mallard skin on just the breast from a speck or a mallard with the skin on cooked very simply like a, like a steak in a screaming hot cast iron pan with salt and pepper, not past medium rare, is as good as meat gets. It is. And I tell people that... that and they're, you know, ask what what's the what's your number one tip? And I say, go buy a meat thermometer. Make sure you're not cooking that thing. Yeah, that'd past be a one, really good place to start. Past one thirty, I mean one thirty, take it off, let it rest. One thirty five, one forty. And see, and I tell you this, you're good. If I could, now I don't take only one thing. It's illegal to. But if I can only eat one thing <laughs> off of waterfowl, I'd eat the legs and the thighs. I, I agree. You know, same thing with the deer. The first thing I eat off a of deer is neck roast and shanks. Oh, man, those shanks are so good. And the easiest way to do it is that is a braising technique, which, mm-hmm. you know, look, people are talking a, a whole lot these days about, they're, you know, they're throwing stuff around that sometimes people find intimidating. They're talking about uh, confit. They're talking about, you know, the sous vide. They're talking about Escoffier-based mother sauces. They're talking about brazing. People are confused about all this stuff. I'm looking at this through the veil of southern cooking. That's where my focus is. That's what I'm interested in. Excuse me. Um, 
there's so many grandmas in Arkansas in Texas and all across the South that they don't know that in the mornings they're making bechamels. They're making Mornay sauces. They're making uh, demi uh, that, you know, people are braising raccoons and don't know that. So I would say don't be intimidated by it. There's unbelievable free resources if you want them all over the Internet. And, man, if you're killing ducks and you're not eating them, I think something's wrong with you. Dude, they're so good. And duck fat in and of itself, I mean, nothing else save that. I've even gotten to the point now, like we talked earlier um, before we were recording, you know, like even if you don't pluck the whole thing, you just you pluck the breast but keep the skin on. And I'll take, you know, because I ground up, we, we had a really successful hunt in North Dakota this fall. More birds than, like, I – it's more just like breast steaks, if you will, than I would ever eat. So mm-hmm. I took a bunch of it and I ground it up, cut it with hamburger, and I just we just use that in everything. You're going to use ground meat, sure. In. Like that's just that's how we are using all of it, and I, you save the legs and thighs. But I'll take that skin. You know, when you grind it, I save the skin. Yeah. And I cut up the strips and I'll render that down so that I get all that fat that I can cook with. You get cracklings. Oh, you get duck skin cracklings, which is so good. Man, and I'm telling you this, don't <laughs> throw your carcasses out, man. Roast those carcasses. Oh, Rip the yeah. guts out. Roast the carcasses. Make stock, stock out of that. Stock out of it. And it, these things all take time. That's And that's in a, in a busy world that we live in. Like I tell people, like with the braising. I mean, a braised goose leg and thigh is so good. You know, and like a, a wine-based broth. You know, mm-hmm. oh, God. It's... Or do it with water. Or do it with so beer. Good. Or anything. Go, go on a hunt. <laughs> hunt with your buddies. Go back. Clean your birds. Or, you know, I would even say age them a few days. But clean your birds. Drink beer the whole time if you want to. You know, BS, watch a game, whatever you like to do. But don't leave them balled up in the bed of your truck until they're no good. And, and frankly, you know, we, let's bring this back to soul and morality and stuff. If you're going out and you're just banging up a bunch of birds and you're throwing them in a ditch or you're letting them get to a point where you can then say to yourself, oh, I got to throw them away because they're no good anymore. Like, one, you're breaking the law. But, two, I think you're being immoral. I wouldn't use the term immoral just because I uh, – morality is just so individual. But uh, I know what you're – but I, I do agree – basically with what you're saying it's like it, it's wasteful it's not it's not ethical it's you know why would you do it to to make it to simplify it it's counterproductive if you're somebody that likes to go out and shoot snow geese you don't like to eat them so you you, you shoot as many snow geese as you can and then you just dump them in the ditch right and whatever guilt-free well that is going to be viewed by other people and while hunting is already under attack in many forms and in many angles, you're not doing yourself any favors. By doing that, you're giving people an excuse to then take that away from you. Because if you can't responsibly do it, right, then all of a sudden you find hunting is now illegal. You're going to blame the liberals for taking hunting away. Hmm. You gave them cause to do that. That's by the way you did the pastime that you professed to love you did it in a way that ruined it for yourself. Well, and look, not, I'm going to push the morality part of this again because I think you're also missing. Uh, if you want to look, if you just want to go out and kill things and then dump them, 
which I don't really know anyone who does that. I wouldn't spend time with someone who did that. But you're missing a huge part of the richness of that activity. You know, I think if you never put any work into finding your own quarry or developing your skills, you're missing a part of this. They, you know, you're, you're, you're becoming a, you're, you're becoming someone who just takes. Right. And I think this is an experience that can be so much richer than that. And I'm not saying that you have to make anything that you consider fancy. If you go and kill a deer every year, and you grind the whole thing up into summer sausage, and you eat that, that is exponentially more honest than going and buying hamburger. I get that. The reason I hesitate to go down the morality road is because it it, it starts this, – this eating everything that you kill and having to utilize every piece of it can kind of become a religion. And in some cases, and even snow geese in a way are a good example because there's so many of them. You know, really, we need to kill as many as possible. If if it's if the bigger picture is population control versus utilizing a resource, like which one of those is more important? Is utilizing every piece of that animal more important than reducing numbers so that they don't have such an impact on the Arctic tundra? Well, see, but it's not an either and or because you immediately change. You change this equation if you every single state has a hunters for the hungry program, you know. Or like True. I know guys that I know people that like to uh, hunt snow geese, but for whatever reason they don't want to eat them. Well, what about coyotes? No one's eating coyotes. Well, there's you get into a different. I think you get into a different <laughs> realm with fur bears, and then you start going down a whole other realm like, of that. But that's but, my point. But that becomes – it's a cultural thing. Like some people do eat dogs. Some people do eat coyotes. But it's not generally accepted as a source of protein. So that that's kind of my point. With Morality is just so malleable. It's just so easily shaped to the individual's needs a lot of times out of convenience to that individual. So I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or different. Again, I like to, I like to play devil's advocate a lot. I'm with you. I'm not going to hang out with somebody that shoots a bunch of geese and dumps them in a ditch. Mm -hmm. That's, I will teach against that. I'll preach against that. I will, that is in my morality is not right. I would consider that a sin, but that changes from person to person. And I try to, you know, but like even, even on a culture, coyote, even culture to culture, even on a coyote. Uh, I mean, you know, we have a difference between what we, you know, there's, and you can go down a rabbit hole with this, but game animals and fur bears. But it's against the law to kill raccoons and not take the hide, just ditch dump them. Now, most places you don't have to like take the hams and quarters off of them, but that's a fur bear. So if you're going to if you're going to kill it, whether it's by you know dog hunting or trapping or whatever, you're supposed to take the hide. Mm -hmm. Aren't you supposed to do that with coyotes as well? Uh, I'm not sure how that would fall under the wanton waste laws i mean there's it's it's more strict and more lenient for yeah, certain that's things probably more variable areas. by state you know yeah. you, there's i think there's some mountain states or like alaska where you have to utilize like you if you don't completely debone that animal you can get a ticket well i know a lot of places in alaska you've you've got to take the meat out before the antlers yeah like so i mean that's and that's kind of goes back to my point like it's highly variable sure like it's so th that's why that's why I kind of like tread lightly around the morality issue, but I I think we're in agreement actually. I yeah, just, yeah, just I more so of me like looking at it in a in a weird 
perception because I like doing that. Or well, playing, no, man, look, I like dude, playing. I like playing devil's advocate. I wouldn't eat any of that stuff if it tasted nasty. Right. You know, that's the thing. I'm eating really high quality, delicious, you know, uh, healthy food. People play too much with that organic thing because you're probably never going to find a deer in the country that's or could be certified organic because they're eating, eating GMO, eating GMO corn. corn. Yeah, but for sure. like I said, it's still a very, very, very different relationship. Yeah. Even in Arkansas, where most people kill deer over bait, it's still a very different relationship with your food to go out into the world and procure that yourself than it is going going to a store and getting it wrapped up. There's there's something that I wanted to and I, we're this is a good time to bring this back and and to wrap this up. When you first started talking about when you when you took over this building and you started pulling off all the layers. Mm-hmm. Like I immediately, my mind immediately went to that is very. It's a good segue. Yeah. I think you're going down the right place. It's yeah. very analogous to people and to culture and to ethics. Mm-hmm. As you start stripping away yourself and those firm beliefs or old beliefs, old ways, and you start seeing different perspectives, you know, you, you're peeling those layers off of yourself, mm-hmm. really getting to the core of what it means to be a human being. Absolutely. And our role within nature, our role within society, with each other. Mm-hmm. And I'll also throw back in, and I believe that is the original intent of most organized religions. Now, while I don't, you know, that, going back to when I talked about the mm-hmm. Bible or whatever, whatever holy book it is, you know, that message, I think those things are all interwoven. I think, I think we as humans a lot of times pervert that and it becomes a thing of power and we get very dogmatic. It has to be this way or that way, which is why you can have a small town with five different Baptist churches. But I think the original basis of any sort of religion, if you will, is a baseline of how to treat other people, how to treat yourself, how to treat the land, how to be a good human being yeah. <laughs> within your environment. Yeah, and I think hand-in-hand hand on that, I really like actually what you did there, man. But I think that what goes along with that is trying to keep ego in check so that you can remain open enough to learn and – and not being afraid to make mistakes because growth is found in large part through failure. Absolutely. One one thing I always say is there is no growth without discomfort. Absolutely. And I kind of use that um, with the current administration when Trump, you know, people are losing their mind, Trump, and I'm like, listen, it's something different. I didn't I didn't vote for him. That's neither here nor there. I don't want to make this a pro or an anti-Trump thing. Having somebody challenge the status quo of how things are, while you might panic and think this is so horrible, this is going to, at some point in time, make our society stronger because you're uncomfortable. The fact that you're uncomfortable ultimately will be a good thing because now you will shore up the pieces, found weaknesses in here, in the process, or whatever. Now we can shore up those things. We can fix those things. If if nobody if it's always just status quo politician that tells you what you want to hear this that you know what's ever going to change nothing's ever going to change there is not going to be any growth somebody has to come along that that 
and again, I know this sounds like a pro-Trump thing, and I don't mean it to, because it can be whatever, for those that didn't like Obama, well, you were uncomfortable. So therefore, there was probably some growth there. You figured out something. You were at least had, you maybe you dug your heels in um, and grasped uh, some antiquated thinking. But there's, I guarantee you there are some people that through that discomfort grew. You know, maybe they had some predisposed notion of what a black president would do to this country. And did it kill the country? Nah, we're still here. So maybe some people became more open-minded. I mean, at least that's my hope that some people grew from that. And it's my hope that people will grow from this administration. It's my hope that people grow from whatever the next administration is. I think we get too sports-like mentality when it comes to politics. Like, it's my team versus your team. We're we're all people. We're all I think the, the I think the word you use, dogma, is dogma in anything I think can, can be dangerous because it's oh, so limiting. Most times. I, I, I would venture to say nearly every time eventually it becomes dangerous. Yeah, or it's like Grandpa say, you know, just go ahead and say you'll never do something. That's a great way to make sure that you do. <laughs> you know that's right. That is, that is for damn sure. I've, I said, man, I've been really doing kind of a little bit of a deep dive on cooking raccoons, man. And I'm telling you, 20-year-old Jonathan would have said, I am never going to eat a raccoon. And, man, I'm making converts left and right. People are getting their minds blown cooking these things. There's stuff you have to learn. The first one I cooked, I didn't know about those scent glands. Buddy, Ooh-wee. you might as well marinate <laughs> in cat pee. But you get those suckers out. You take your time cleaning it. You know, you get a cool hide. You get some really top-quality meat. And you get something that, truthfully, no one else is going after, so it's really easy to get a hold of. Got a lot of it. Lots of it. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. This has been awesome. I feel like we could talk for about 10 hours. Yeah, man. It was was a real pleasure, man. I I hate that uh, I have a time constraint here. We just keep this going. Well, um, man, I'm sure they're tired of listening to us. But, uh, yeah, man, I hope you enjoy Arkansas. And, uh, yeah, let's be friends. Maybe I'll come over there and crappy fish with you. Come on up. uh, Minnesota's got a lot to offer. In uh, a lot of ways, culinarily and sporting, it's a sportsman's paradise up there. We got all sorts of good stuff. Let everybody give everybody where they can find you, and if anybody wants to stay here or book an event or tell me what you got and how you operate. Uh, So, especially this next year, there's probably going to be a lot more, you know, quote unquote content being created. I was a little bit haphazard with it in the past year because I was just busy, kind of physically doing a lot of nuts and bolts type stuff. But uh, you know, recipes, articles. Uh, you know, examinations of this this kind of stuff we've been doing today. You can find that at blackduckrevival.com. Also, a great way to learn about the history of this place. And if you want to book a stay here, uh, I'm really active on Instagram. That's just Black Duck Revival on Instagram. So just look up Black Duck Revival. You'll find me some way. And, uh, yeah, if you got any questions about anything, if you want to come here and hunt, I'm happy to talk to you about what your options are, tell you where the boat ramps are, give you some help on a – just general conditions, and uh, I mean, I want people to come here and have a really fun, rad time, and 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 see what Arkansas has to offer. Because I mean, we're a sleeper state, but as far as hunting and fishing, this is one of the best places in the country to do it. It's the only state you can hunt an alligator, an elk, and a black bear in. <laughs> you got elk here? I didn't, yeah, you have elk in Arkansas. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. that's probably in the on the uh, Wachita Mountains. Is there elk up there? No, Wachita is south. They're up in the. Uh, no more by the Ozarks. Oh, okay. Up by north. All right, right on. Is there a hunting season for them? Yep. 
Oh, wow. Man, I got drawn for third alternate on a tag. I was so close to getting one. But, really? Uh, yeah, it's a lottery thing. Same with alligators. But, uh, you know, you get a bear tag with, with, with your six deer tag. So. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be, I, have, I haven't yet to kill a bear. We have bears all over the place in Minnesota. But I don't – there's only so much any days in the year, and there's this season and that season and the other season. I, I'm a waterfaller at heart, so when September 1st opens up, that's early goose season. That's also when bear season opens. I so feel you, like man. I can't do everything, even though I would like to. But, yeah, there is no off season for me. I mean, I get right into the – the foraging aspect even in the middle of summer i'm out collecting wild greens and mushrooms and doing yeah i mean i do shit, a bunch so. of that too uh yeah no i feel you man like you can't do everything all the time but sometimes i'll take a break from from something and like this year i didn't deer hunt very much and i put all my effort into bow hunting black bears so it didn't happen but i learned a bunch i kind of gave myself three years to try and do it so I got two more to try and pull it off. Now I want to ask you about black bear hunting down here, but I'm not going to because then we'll just keep talking. Uh, you got it going. I got it going. So, again, Jonathan, thank you very much for doing this. This was awesome. All right, man. Good All to right, meet you. Cool. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.